We are so thankful and honored to be together this morning in the presence of our Heavenly Father to glorify Him and praise and worship Him. Thank you for being among us today. If you're visiting with us, we're really happy that you can be here. Before I get into the lesson this morning, uh, I'd like to mention that a week from tomorrow, Lord willing, uh, Joe Greer and I will be heading to Africa. Uh, It's coming up on me like the uh, proverbial freight train at the end of the tunnel, uh, but it's, it's going to be here uh, before we know it, Lord willing. Uh, we're looking forward to the trip. Uh, Joe and I will be working for a week in Zambia, and then I'm to meet up with John Gibson, and John and I will go into Zimbabwe for a week and work there, particularly among the preachers that East Side is supporting in Zimbabwe. So that's the plan. We pray that all will go well. We ask for your prayers uh, to make that happen and for God to be with us in all things. Look forward to being able to come back and tell you how everybody's doing over there. This morning, I want to talk to you about replacing grief and anger with trust in such a way that it can lead you to be comforted, to be at peace, and to praise God. We can do that by what we'll call prayers of lament, and I'll be telling you more about that toward the end of the lesson. But to start out with, let's just make a a few points about trust and what it means to trust in God and how significant it is that we trust in God. Because trusting in the wrong thing or the wrong person in life is going to bring a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and a lot of grief. Frankly, when we put our faith, our trust in something that's not trustworthy, it just makes us mad. It just makes us mad. And we do that often um, of our own volition, being warned not to do it. For instance, we put our faith in money. We put our faith in our health or our own ability to do things. Uh, We put our faith in lots of things that are not God. We put our faith in our vehicles. We put our faith in our computers, and then they go on the fritz on us. And and so all of these things we we put our trust in, and we find that they're wholly unreliable. And that it is only God who is really worthy of our trust. It was Bildad who said in the book of Job, in Job 8 and verse 13, So are the paths of all who forget God, The hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, whose trust is a spider's web. You ever trusted in a spider's web? Um, Probably the only thing you're going to get out of that is being bit by a spider. It's not going to support you. It's not going to help you. Trust in anything but God is trust in a spider's web. Eliphaz said in Job 15 and verse 31, Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. You trust in things that are empty and meaningless and futile, and you'll wind up being full of emptiness and meaninglessness and futility. Only God who can be trusted fully. And in that trust, we'll find contentment in life, and we'll find that anger will be assuaged and grief will be comforted. And those are really the points of the lesson today. For Psalms 4 and verse 4 tells us that trusting in the Lord is the solution to earthly grief and anger. 
Be angry, it says, and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There's trust in God that helps us to deal with the problems of life and the things that would otherwise make us angry and the things that would otherwise put us to such grief that we would not be able to function. What is the root cause of anger? Well, I think the root cause of anger is that something happens that is not what we want to happen. (laughs) That could be, be described a lot of different ways, but when something happens that you don't want to happen, you're probably going to get mad about it or it's going to grieve you. And so that seems at least to be the impetus or the ideology of anger and grief. You know, Jonah was so angry, wasn't he? When God told him to go and preach to Nineveh, it's the last thing he wanted to do. Got on a boat, went the other way, got thrown in the sea, swallowed by a great fish, spat spat back up on the land. Then he went and preached to Nineveh and did so quite effectively because all the people of this wicked foreign city, Nineveh, that was an enemy of Israel, they repented. And God was merciful to the city of Nineveh in that age. Jonah couldn't stand it. He wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. It displeased him exceedingly, Jonah 4 and verse 1. Jonah displeased exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. See, the thing that made Jonah angry is that what was happening with Nineveh is not what he wanted to happen, but he knew it was what God wanted to happen. Because Job's concept of mercy and grace was not God's concept of mercy and grace. Job was trusting, uh, Job, Jonah was trusting in something else. He did not share God's view of mercy. So we also get angry because God doesn't do what we think he ought to do in the way we ought to do it, in the way we think he ought to do it, or when he should do it. We get upset about that. We look at the world as God allows it to be. And this isn't the way the world would be if I was in charge, right? It's not what I want. Our anger, which we would deny is actually at God, but it really is. Jonah was angry with God. reveals that we've fallen into a lie. That we think that God should have done something different. That we have the right even to think that God should have done something different. That God should have protected my family. 
or saved my marriage or healed that illness or prevented it to begin with. And so we grieve and we're unhappy. Jonah, Jonah goes up, sits on a hill overlooking Nineveh and waits to see what would happen. Nothing happens. It's hot. Jonah builds him a little shed. That's not working for him much. God calls a plant to grow up and shade Jonah and provide him shade. And Jonah was thankful for the plant. Here's something. Now, now you're doing something, God. Now, now you're, you're doing something right here, giving me some shade. But then God prepared a worm. And it chewed on that plant, and overnight the thing withered and fell away, and so now the blazing sun and the hot wind is on Jonah. And Jonah again is angry. And God asks him, is it right for you to be angry with, at the plant, at the worm, at me? He doesn't say me, but that's implied. And Jonah says, it is, angry, it is right for me to be angry unto death. I wish I was dead. God said, you're grieving about the plant that you didn't do anything to produce. You're angry about that. And yet you don't care about this city full of people thousands of which don't even know how to discern the right from the left. They're kids. God is just so much bigger than we are in his love for everybody, in his justice for sure, but also in his care and concern for the well-being and the souls of all of humankind. He knows what he's doing. And it ill behooves us to second-guess him. And particularly not to be angry with what he allows or what he does. Someone who had the same problem of Jonah, I think, is the older brother in the account, the story of the prodigal son that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 15. The older brother also did not share God's view of mercy You remember the story, this man has two sons and the younger one insists that he get his inheritance early and he goes out and wastes it on just sinful living and a whole bunch of terrible things apparently. He finally comes into poverty, he comes to himself, he realizes that he'd be better off as a servant in his father's house. He goes home, his father greets him, sees him coming from afar off, runs out, hugs him, says, you know, Bring the ring, kill the fatted calf, let's have a party, let's have a celebration. Put a robe on him. And the older son is out in the field when this happens, and he comes in, he hears the party going on inside, and calls to one of the servants in verse 26 of Luke 15. says, what's going on? What, what do these things mean? And the servant says to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. In verse 28, 28 it says, but he was angry and would not go in. 
And the father comes out and pleads with him. He answered and said to his father, These many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours comes, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. And the father says to him, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. There's a lot in this story, obviously, in this lesson this morning is not about this incident particularly, other than to notice the anger of the older brother. But we do need to think for a minute about what was he really angry about? What was he really angry about? Well, he thought, the brother perceived, that he was just a really, really good person. He had been really, really faithful to his father. And his father hadn't done anything for him special. Did you hear that mindset? You never did this for me. Is that the way we feel? God never did anything for me. And look what he's doing for so-and-so. Who's a scoundrel. Who's a rotten person. Who has been a rotten person. Now maybe he's repented. Maybe he's trying to serve the Lord. Maybe he's not. He's acting like it anyway. And how could God do that for him? And again, what's happening is not what I think should happen. So I'm mad. angry and I'm grieved so that's the root cause of anger trusting the father is what's going to overcome that David's trust in the Lord informed a, a lot of his decisions we've been studying a lot about David recently and that will continue for a while in our Bible classes but you might want to go back in your Bibles and notice an account that occurs in 2 Samuel 16, we notice this occasionally uh, in studying uh, David's character, but particularly how to deal with enemies and how to deal with mistreatment. So David, his son Absalom at this point has pretty much uh, staged a coup, is taking over David's kingdom, and David is having to flee Jerusalem, uh, getting out of town, uh, basically fleeing for his life at this point, although it's going to be a, a very brief time that he has to do that. So he's, he's traveling along with some of his uh, select army, some of his uh, guards and soldiers. And there's this guy that comes out, his name's Shammai, and he's, he's uh, of the household of Saul. And he comes out at David and he's cursing. He's cursing David. He's kicking up uh, dust in the air. He's throwing rocks at David, just gone crazy. And he's calling David a, a, a bloodthirsty man. That, that is a, a man with blood on his hands. And he calls him in verse 7, the, uh, the King James, New King James Version says, uh, you, you rogue, uh, but it probably is something not so nice as you rogue uh, in the original language. Just an, an ugly, ugly name. Worthless person is what he's calling him. And he's saying all this is happening to you because of what you did to the house of Saul. Now Abishai, who is one of the uh, mighty men of David, is going along in the entourage, and he basically turns to David and he says, can I just go over there and take off his head? 
Just, just, just let me. Just let me go over and take off his head. And David says, no. He says, no, don't do it. Verse 11, the last part. Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. In other words, the Lord's allowing this. This is something that's happening for a reason here. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. We saw in our class David having a similar attitude when he had the opportunity to take Saul's life in the cave. Just let God handle that. And here again is why David is, in fact, a man after God's own heart. He trusts God. He trusts God with everything that's going on. He doesn't necessarily like it (laughs) that he's having to suffer. He doesn't like it that people are cussing him and throwing rocks at him. He doesn't like it that Saul's after him earlier in his life. But he trusts God. And so the question really is, when it comes to dealing with bad things happening to us, things that might otherwise anger us or grieve us deeply, who do we trust? What do we trust in dealing with those things? I like the story uh, a preacher wrote several years ago in a book about an experience he had with his children. He had, he had two girls. At the time this happened, one of them was uh, five year, years old and one was three years old. Uh, the older one was ready for a bicycle. And so they took her to the bike shop to buy a bicycle, and she got one, you know, with the banana seat and the streamers and all that kind of stuff. So uh, a nice girly bike, and here, he, here he's buying it for his five-year-old daughter. And the three-year-old, however... Uh, doesn't understand why she can't get a bicycle as well. Well, she can't ride a bicycle. She can barely ride her tricycle. The dad tries to explain that to her. No, 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 I, don't, uh, I want a bicycle. I've got to have a bicycle. You, you don't love me. Give me a bicycle, you know. And so she just throws a fit there in the bike shop, and, and he, he tries to explain to her, no, it'll, it'll just be scrapes and bruises and cuts. With you, you're not be able to ride it. It'll just hurt you. I can't, we're not going to buy a bicycle for you right now. And still she's going on and on. Why can't, why can't I have a bicycle? And finally, he does what most dads do at this point, And he said, because daddy says so, you cannot have a bicycle. And she says what a lot of three-year-olds have said in response to that. Then I want another daddy. And how many times have we not, in essence, said that to God? God, if you're not going to do this this way, then I want another God. We just don't trust him. That he actually knows best. That he actually knows what he's doing. With our lives, with everything that's going on in our lives, with the world around us, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that it may not be pleasant for us in the moment. We may not understand it. We don't have to understand it. We have to trust him. We have to trust him. 
You see, we believe God owes us something better than the hardships that we face. We might even see him as someone who's unconcerned about our true well-being, that he's willing to hurt his children, refusing to give them what is best for them. We need to ask ourselves, do we really, do we really want another father? Or will you trust the one who really loves you, who's loved you from the beginning and from all eternity, and who only wants the best for you, and has demonstrated that by giving his only begotten son to die for you, to take your place, as Micah was telling us this morning. We must trust in God, and we must trust in both his mercy and his justice as it is evidenced in the world around us and in our lives individually. Isn't that, isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what David did? Look at Jesus 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. When he was reviled, he's on the cross. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. I, I could have called, Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels to get out of this anytime. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? He was trusting God with what was happening. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? He trusts his Father. He commits himself to him who judges righteously, knowing that God will, in fact, work all of this out. So in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. God is wanting and willing and going to bless those who trust him. Just commit to him. Just trust him. So that brings me to this way of showing this level of trust, putting this level of trust into practice in a way that relates to our prayer life. We are a house of prayer, and prayer is the answer to so many of life's difficulties and so much of our spiritual well-being. Trusting God through laments of faith turning anger to trust through lamenting. Now, the word lament has to do with expressing sorrow or grief or even anger in a way. When you're hurting, questioning, 
doubting. There is a way that you can express those feelings in lamenting. The scriptures teach us this, what you might call the art of holy lamenting. Learning how to express your grief and frustration to God about calamities, about troubles, about unexplained seeming injustices, about all of the things that he allows in our lives. If you look through the scriptures, you have uh, several examples, broad examples uh, of lamenting. You have the book of Job, you have the book of Lamentations, you have a lot of the Psalms, which are expressions of lament. So when, when lamenting, people like, like Jeremiah and David, they took their hurting feelings to God. Yes, they were hurt. Yes, they had grief. And yes, they even had incipient anger. But they express it to God in such a way that demonstrates their trust in Him. And not in their own feelings. They use the lament and taking all of this to God as a way to overcome those feelings that are otherwise overcoming them. So, laments tend to have the following elements. Lament, again, it just means kind of crying out loud is basically what it means. First of all, you've got somebody that's suffering in one way or another. Something has happened that they did not want to happen. It's paining them emotionally or physically, socially or in some other way. They're suffering. Secondly, they respond to that in prayer. Thirdly, the prayer shows faith in God. Whatever they're asking for relative to the situation is going to show faith in God. And fourthly, it demonstrates humility on their part that they are understanding where they are in the sight of God. They are exalting Him while lowering themselves. And lastly, the consequence of all of that is renewal. Renewal of the person's spirit, but also renewal of a relationship with God that is very, very positive, where God is praised and the one who is giving the praise is joyous. That's how lamenting works. It's cathartic in a way. But prayer is a central aspect of it. And so, in the time we have remaining, I just want to look at a few prayers of lament in the Psalms. And what I'd like for you to do is to think through some of this with me and then just take it into your life. And the next time you're, you know, borderline angry or grieving or suffering or going through hard times, think about how to take this to God, expressing the things that we just talked about. Instead of being angry at social injustice, and there's lots to be angry at regarding social injustice, instead of that, lament it to God in prayer. Look at the 10th Psalm. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So David is looking at this and Wow, there's awful stuff going on in society. The the wicked and the powerful are persecuting the poor. God just seems to be standing back looking at it. Let them be caught in the plots of their own devising. He says, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. 
The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. This is an awful situation. These wicked, awful people oppressing those who are poor and perhaps innocent as well. But then look on down a little later. We're not going to look at every bit of all of these psalms, but look at verse 13 as he picks up this thought. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But, here it is, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. Why does God observe it? To do nothing about it? Look at it. You have seen. You observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. What's David doing? David, I, I see all this trouble. I, I see all this oppression. I see what's going on in society. I see the injustice. But you know what, God? I know you're watching it too. And you're going to take care of it. And with that, you don't have to go to bed every night angry at what you saw on Fox News. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you just don't. Lament it to the Lord. Instead of being angry when an enemy has the upper hand, and that will happen often in a person's life, when evil seems to get uh, ahead of good, and when in your personal life, those who are godless or want to do you harm, seem to be ahead of good things that might be happening. Look back at Psalm 6. And notice in verse 1, this is Psalm of David, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord. I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm in a mess here. But I am waiting on you. Look in verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed steadfast. I'm waiting on you. You're going to handle this. Just let this happen. Look at Psalm 13. The first few verses of that psalm as well. Psalm 13 starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Seems like, again, God's not doing anything in my life. All this is out here, all these problems. What's God doing? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed against him. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you see that? He's in all sorts of trouble. And calamity surely awaits him. But he's saying, God, I know you're going to take care of this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you. Go over in your Bibles to the 43rd Psalm. And see it again, when verses 1 and 2, vindicate me, O God, I plead my cause against an ungodly nation, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, you are the God of my strength, why do you cast me off? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So I'm in all this trouble. I go mourning all the time. This is grieving me. But then, look at verse 5. He talks to himself and he says, Well, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You know what your countenance is? It's the way you look. You know, I, have a, I know I have a certain look when I'm down in the dumps. You know, most people, they recognize that, can just see it. And I've had lots of people say, when I have that look, they'll come up to me and say, what's wrong with you? So you can just see it. But what changes your countenance when you've got that? Trusting in God. Talking to yourself within and saying, God, I'm going to praise you. So you have, instead of being angry with an enemy or suffering in your circumstances, lamented in prayer. Instead of being angry with getting old. Anybody angry about getting old? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I'd sit and listen to older people talk about their pains and their problems and how many times they had to go to the doctor and now I'm in that line as well. Um, it just seems like getting old, as they say, is not for sissies. But even that is, is dealt with in a psalm of lament, I think, in, in Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. In verse 3, He says, be my strong refuge, to which I resort continually. You have given me, I'm sorry, yes, you have given me commandments to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. You are my hope, O God. Then look in verse 6. But I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. I have become as a wonder to many. You are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in time of my old age. And do not forsake me when my strength fails. He's getting old. Yet God is with him. He remembers all of his life that God has been with him. And he's just asking God, now I'm getting old and things are falling apart. Just continue to be with me. Pick up the reading in verse 12. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed who are adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and praise Praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness, your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness daily. O God, you have taught me from my youth. And to this day, I declare your wondrous work. So here's a person who is, sure enough, getting older. But they're trusting God all the way through it. Verse 18, now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me. 
until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. The comfort that a person who is aging gets out of this psalm is, yes, you're getting old. Yes, things aren't working as well as they used to. Yes, there are pains. Yes, there are problems. But yes, you can still glorify God. And yes, God is still with you and holding your hand and upholding you through all of this, even to the end. And the psalmist realizes all of that. Lastly, instead of being angry and grieving simply at what sin has done to your life, lament it. Give it to God in trust that He can heal you. He can forgive you and heal your broken soul and the travail that sin has caused in your life. When you go back to Psalm 38, there's a couple of psalms and the lesson will be yours. Go back to Psalm 38 with me. Notice here in verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger nor any health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden they are for me. So he's, he's lamenting. He's talking about how terrible it is, sin in his life. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. He's just in such grief, in such agony because of his sins. He says, for my loins are full of inflammation. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble, severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. So all of this he's taking to God. He's not wallowing in his sins. He's not leading, allowing his sin to lead him into a deep, dark depression. That's not it. He is troubled by it all. But he's going to give it all to God. And so you have in verses 21 and 22, Do not forsake me, O Lord my God. Do not be far off. Make, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. God will help him. And backing up in verses 17 and 18, he was ready to fall. He says, My sorrow is continually before me, but I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. So you take all of that to God, and you lay it at his feet, and what does he do? He forgives you. And he makes it all right, and he makes you well, spiritually. And then lastly, the 130th Psalm. Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. You ever been in the depths? Deep down depths of where sin and poor choices have taken you. That's where the psalmist is as he writes these words. I have, I have, you have, we all have been in the depths. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I don't know what's happening in everybody's life this morning. I'm pretty sure we're all fighting sin. We're probably fighting things that grieve us and sorrow us and anger us or could if we let them. I just want to tell you that God and trusting in God is the solution to all of that. 
that right now today, if you would be willing to take whatever sin, whatever iniquity, whatever fault, whatever bad thing that you have done, and in grief confess it to God, that he will alleviate your grief. He will take away the sin and heal your soul. And if this morning you don't have access to the blood of Christ because you're not a Christian, you need access to that blood to get your sins forgiven. I'm going to sing a song in a moment. Take advantage of the blood of Jesus and name his name and become a child of God by being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. Please come while we stand and while we sing.